I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is a bit different. I have some amazing co-hosts with me to help guide the conversation with Pam Harris. And before we get to Pam, I want to chat with my two co-hosts for a bit. Rob Schwartz is a math supervisor and Macy Basum is a K-5 math coach. Macy and Rob, thank you for co-hosting with me today and helping to bring some depth to this math conversation. So, As we're thinking about this conversation, as we're about to get into it, what are some things that you guys are curious about as we start this episode? So first, Matt, I'm really excited to be here. Um, This is my first recording of one, so thanks for inviting me. Thanks for inviting Pam. I'm really excited to talk to her. What I'm really hoping to get from her is, you know, who were... You know, who were her mentor, mentors? Mm-hmm. Who were her followers? Where did she get in this information that, you know, everything now is so interconnected that, you know, I know her and there's other, you know, kind of math, you know, ed celebs, you know, that I get to, but where did, where did this come from for her? I'm curious to see who those people were for her. Good. Yeah. What about you, Macy? I'm really curious about what um, suggestions Pam has for working with teachers just in the coaching role and transforming that mindset of teachers towards thinking about um, how we can get teachers supporting students in thinking rather than what we typically see is teachers doing the thinking and all the heavy lifting. Um, and, and from that, you know, what, what can we do with our, with our current program to support that open-ended math? That's great. Thinking about that question or that mindset or that angle from a little bit differently. As we get ready for our conversation, is there anything specifically that, that you really want to learn uh, from her? So Pam is, you know, an expert in professional development. It's what she, you know, it's what she does. She goes around the school district. She has asynchronous courses. And given that they're like, that's what I do as the math supervisor, like I'm really ready to see like, are the things that I'm doing the right, I don't say the right things, but are they the things that, you know, that she's doing or that she's recommended as someone who's further along in her journey than I am. I just want to make sure I'm on the right path. What about you, Macy? So I think what I want to learn from Pam is just thinking about the difference between what we do in school and what she thinks we should do in school. Yeah, that sounds great. And I'm excited for this episode just to sit back, allow you guys to take the lead with the questions and learn and reflect along with you. So let's get to our guest. Our guest today is Pam Harris. Pam teaches at Texas State University. She's an author, 
podcast host, presenter, and founder of Math is Figure Outable. Check her out at mathisfigureoutable.com. Pam, thanks so much for joining me. Let's start this conversation off with your journey, your story. Tell us a bit about your math journey. What has brought you to where you are today? Thanks, Matt. I appreciate you having me on today. Uh, as you said, you can find me at Math is Figure Outable, and that is sort of my mantra. That is what I live by, that math is figure outable. And people sometimes scoff a little bit. They kind of chuckle, you know, of course, of course, you believe that math is figure outable. You're a math yeah. teaching expert. So, you know, yeah. But I'm going to admit that as a student and far too long as a young teacher, I actually believed something completely different about math. I thought that math mm. was rote memorizable. Yeah. And I looked at it as a completely different uh, subject, um, as a thing to learn that, uh, than I do now. And it's fascinating to me to be able to look at it with a different perspective now and realize that the, uh, the rest of the world doesn't have that perspective. Um, and so how did I get there? Uh, I mm -hmm. was a high school teacher. I can still uh, remember the days when I would look at my students, uh, I had a whiteboard marker in my hand, and I would be a little frustrated Um I was working really hard. I could see all my notes and, and papers and books and, and uh, you know, all the preparation that I did. And my students were, were a little bit less enthusiastic than I was hoping for. They, um, they would sort of wait me out until I would just kind of tell them how to do it. And I wanted more than that. I wanted to have some, you know, engagement and interest and intrigue. And, and I sort of wasn't um, feeling that. So, you know, I went to, to workshops. I tried all the things. I bought manipulatives. I tried better questioning and more wait time. Just like many math teachers, I looked for ways to kind of entertain, yeah. like humor, rhyme, wrap my way into getting students engaged. And just like many hardworking teachers, um, I had some, uh, several students who were, you know, most, many students who were willing to play the game. They were kind of compliant. They, 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 they worked hard at mimicking me, but what they weren't doing was willing to like think and reason and try to make sense mm -hmm. of things. Well, I now realize because it was also not sensical to just mimic that I was really doing a bunch more with what I now call fake math. I was expecting students to just mimic what I was doing. And that's not very intriguing. That's not very interesting. Mm. So my journey is that then I had four kids of my own and I saw my son as a first and second grader. He would come home and tell me how he was thinking about problems in ways that were totally different than I'd ever thought even mm. existed. And he was having fun doing it. He was really engaged and he was intrigued. It's now He was doing what I now consider real math, yeah. not the fake math that I was teaching of just following procedures. And I would look at him and I would, as, as we were having fun with the math, I would say, we have to find a way to create this. Like it can't just be that he's just a magical, like that. No, because because as he and I would do it together, I was doing it too. And I thought, well, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Like we, how do, how do I share this? And so I dove into the research about how we can teach um, sort of real math. I think it had something to do with the fact that I was coming from a secondary perspective that I was able to kind of ferret out some of the less helpful um, things that I found as I dove into the research and, and kind of focus on the more helpful part of it. And so now I try to share with people um, what, uh, how we can get kids interested in real math, not just trying to mimic um, what the steps that we've showed them how to do. Uh, and so I, I, I wrote a book called Building Powerful Numeracy. Um, in the process of teaching, I was working with secondary teachers and they said, hey, we're kind of interested in that elementary stuff you're doing with your own personal kids. 
as I was listening to my, my own personal son do, and I was engaged with him, I kind of went into his classroom and mm. said, Hey, can I try some stuff with these kids? And the teachers were kind of like, who are you? I'm like, I'm his mom, but I'm a math teacher. You know, can we, <laughs> can we, can we try some? And the more that I did, they invited me to come in and do some professional learning with the teachers. I started doing the PD for, for that particular school. Eventually I did all the professional learning K-5 across the district. Then after a few years, I did it K-8. They kind of couldn't get rid of me because I was just like a mom in the district. Um, and 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 I, I learned a ton. We made a lot of mistakes. And so one of yeah. the things that I can do today is save people from making those same mistakes. But uh, I got the best of, of all the worlds because my personal kids were uh, went through that sort of system that I was kind of changing as we went. And they had excellent, excellent teachers who were working hard to teach that real math that I was just talking about. Pam, if you can give us a glimpse into your process, how that changed, right? You were teaching this sort of fake math into the real math in the classroom. Give us a glimpse into what that looked like as that process changed from one to the other and what that, how that impacted the environment in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. In a huge way, it had uh, a lot to do with me listening to kids. So instead of saying, here's how you do it, now mimic, you know, like I did it. Now we can do it together. Now you go do it. Instead of that, it was me saying, here's a, here's a question. How are you thinking about that? Before they'd been taught the steps and then listening and learning to listen to kids. Another huge step in that was then as I listened to kids and actually learn and uh, uh, listen, learn to listen about how they're using their relationships. Then I had to learn, Ooh, how can I represent what you're doing? How can I make that visible? Because in a, a really big way, I was not able to hang on to uh, a lot of the kind of mental math things that were being thrown around until I saw um, people represent them, until I saw them sort of be visible on the page. And I could go, oh, like those are the relationships. That's how you're using that. Well, that makes sense. Uh, I, I'm I'm not good at what you would maybe call traditional mental math, uh, where you're sort of supposed to keep it all up in your head. Um, one of the things that set me free was the elementary researcher named Kathy Fosno when she said, mental math does not mean you do it all in your head. Mental math means that you do it with your head. So it's totally legal to keep track of your mental thinking. And when she would, in her wonderful Young Mathematicians at Work series, when she would make thinking visible, when she would use models, uh, visual models to help me see the relationships, oh, then I could, I could, I could create those uh, relationships in my head. Those were the mental things that could happen between numbers, between mathematical structures. Oh, that made sense that when I could see it, then the other thing that's nice is uh, you asked how it changes the classroom. Now we can talk about it. Now that it's visible and it's out there and we can point to it. Now we can all have a conversation about it. And all of a sudden, conversation in my classrooms became less about me trying to entertain kids with stories and raps and rhymes and more about me um, discussing with kids. Wait, wait, how are you thinking about, tell me, tell me more about like this. And I would, oh, not like that. You mean like, oh, like, is anybody else thinking this way? Well, how, how do you make sense of this? And so the conversation completely changes in the classroom. Now, now we get kids intrigued. Now kids are like, well, well, that was clever. I wonder if I can do something clever. Like, like I, I have access to what you just did. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use my brain to see what kind of the way I can use the relationships to solve the problems. It's, it's interesting. There's so many things, Pam, that are pinging for me as, as you're talking. <laughs> um, that first being, you know, the students, that implicit contract that you noted at the beginning. You could have gotten by for the rest of your career with that like implicit, you know, compliance contract that you see so much in secondary classrooms where it's like, you're the teacher, you know, I'm the kid, you just tell me what to do. If I do it, then you just leave me alone. 
Yep, absolutely. And you, and you could have gotten for the rest of your career through that way. And, and no one would have, I don't want to say, I say no one would have faulted you because that's what you see in many typical math classrooms. But I would have been far less fulfilled. And there's that intellectual curiosity that I think is so important that you said led you kind of on your journey. You had to have, you know, that intellectual curiosity. Like, I Can I do this better? How do I do this better? Yeah, absolutely. And, and seeing my kid do something that I, 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 I can do that. I have access to that. Let me, let me into there. I, I, I want some of that. And then realizing that we could give that to everybody. If there's not a math brain out there. Sometimes people will ask me, well, is there like natural talent? You know, like some people are just naturally mathy. I mean, maybe, but in the same way that like, I think Michael Jordan, okay, I'm aging myself a little bit, but he, is he a natural basketball athlete? Yeah, I kind of think so. I think he was pretty good at it. However, I wanted to play basketball and just because I'm short and slow, was I, was, did, did people not let me play? And I worked really hard at it and working hard at it. I was allowed to play. You know what? Let's let all kids play at the level that they want to work hard at in mathematics. If we open the door to real math, mm. all kids can do more real math than fake math. And it's, I told you my background is a first grade teacher, you know, Macy's at elementary, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. It's some point, around, I don't know, is it third grade? Is it second grade? Is it fifth grade? When math gets ruined for kids, right? Like all little kids love building blocks and playing with Legos and constructing and deconstructing. And at some point that stops being math and math starts being something else. And yeah. I think that that's where they start to learn addition and subtraction of multi-digit numbers. And what do the teachers directly go to? Those algorithms, and it's not the fun part anymore, and um, it's not with understanding, which I think you do a lot of work around, Pam. And we'll probably get to that a little bit more, but what's really resonating with me right now is thinking about you wanted to go on this journey to find out more and think about how your son was mathematizing. And you know, a lot of teachers may want that fulfillment as well, but what do you do with those with those teachers who who aren't your followers, podcast listeners, like-minded teachers that, that may not be ready to make that mindset, mindset shift? Where do you start with those teachers? So I think we have to be a little careful because uh, especially the older or the more experienced, um, I say specifically a math teacher gets, we have a, a lot of math teachers who may be like I was, who built their professional concept of themselves on the fact that they were good at math. And um, teachers more so than I think anyone else define themselves by their by being a teacher. Absolutely. And and then I think math teachers maybe more than other subjects, maybe, I don't know, but for sure math teachers, some of them define themselves that that they know the math. Um I, I think sometimes it's easier for me to work with elementary teachers because they're like they're kind of clear they're not a math expert. Mm-hmm. Like not all, but they, you know, there's many of them they're like, ah, you know, I'm not I'm not all that good at math, which I yep. then say never say that again in your life. <laughs> um but but since they're sort of clear they never intended to be a math expert, they don't hang their hat on that. They're they're they don't have a lot yeah. of skin in the game. They're not they're not so when I say, hey, check it out. Like, like how you were thinking about that? That's a way you can actually solve these problems. They're like, really? Like the way I think is is, is valid? Ha! Huh, who knew? Versus versus uh, the higher level you go. Now you have a math teacher. Let me just use me. So I'll speak from my experience. Um, when I would go to professional development, when I was young and, and, and sort of teaching fake math, if somebody said, hey, today we're going to work on questioning strategies, or we're going to work on wait time, or something sort of pedagogy oriented, I was all ears, you know, like, yeah, yeah, help me out. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to dive in. When you started having me do math in front of my peers, oh, my anxiety would go up. And I, didn't, I wouldn't admit that to anyone, 
But I was really clear as a high school math teacher, I was supposed to be the God of math. Like I had to know it all. That was, that was the definition. And, and if I didn't, what am I doing there? And so at all costs, I was going to look good in front of my peers. I was going to make sure I, you know, you're not going to catch me not knowing how to do that. Mm-mm-mm. So I, there's probably other math teachers out there that were, are more mature than I was when I started out. But I do think there's this sort of sense that we have that, that we know the math. And so if I start to say, um, I think there's actually some other ways we could think about that problem. I think there's some, some ways that we could help kids develop alternative strategies that are actually more efficient than what you just are doing. And that we can actually um, help students be judicious problem solvers so they don't use the same strategy every time. That can rock some people's worlds. That could be, you know, so I think we have to be a little bit... Um, uh, I'm looking for a good word, uh, empathetic, uh, sympathetic. We have to have like, yeah. we have to be human about it and recognize adults have baggage. Adults are, um, that th- we, we take the same sort of, um, emotionally pleasant route with them that we would with students. We're not going to look at students and say, Hey, idiot, change what you're doing. <laughs> we're we're going to work with them, uh, as the mathematician, the budding mathematicians that they are by, by trying to catch their intrigue, by trying to, um, help them like wonder and notice things. And as they notice, like wonder about what's happening there. So with those a little bit more recalcitrant teachers, um, I try to give them some things to think about that, that maybe they um, are already thinking about or that they can hang on to. So I might ask them something like, I, you know, you, you really are focusing on these algorithms, uh, elementary teacher. Let me just ask you, what's 99 plus anything? to which they'll look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, give me a, give me your, a, an ugly two digit number. So I'll just let you guys, any, anybody. I was playing two? this game with Matt cause he's my non mathy person. Like we talk to Rob all the time. He gives us problems. <laughs> and, and then I listened to your podcast with the 99. There you go. There you go. You know where I'm headed. Plus yeah. Anything. yeah. So I think Matt should answer it. <laughs> hey, Hey Matt, <laughs> let me just change the way she just talked about you. You, you're not a math person yet. <laughs> he is a mathy person. What I mean is that he's not constantly in these conversations ah, where, there go. There where go. we go in circles about how to solve one problem. So mm-hmm. if you ask Matt how he solves math problems in his head, he his first thing was, well, I'm not really good at math. So like, you don't want to hear what I what I do in my head. I'm like, no, 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 I really want to hear. And, um, and he's shared and I was like, that's amazing. He's like, yeah, but you know, it's really not the way you should do it. And <laughs> I was like, but it is, it is the way you should do it. And you're an adult and you can go around the world and have this strategy in your back pocket and, and you get the answer. He's like, not always, but I'm like, but you get close. (laughs) (laughs) So I think right here, we have someone who, you know, like you're talking about with those teachers who aren't so confident and, and maybe trying something different or believing in their own strategies that they do in their head and how they manipulate numbers. But it is fun watching, especially, you know, you say elementary teachers, because I think that by nature, they're more, you know, they're not as confident in their math. And so they're willing to take that piece in. So when, when they do figure a piece out, when you do talk to them about what keep switch flip really is and like, wow, I say how many, you know, how many times does four go into 12? I can do the same thing with fractions. And you're like, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it really opens up. Uh, but that example that you gave talking about, you know, secondary teachers who really define themselves by their content, Pam, just as an example, and I'd be curious to hear what your next step would have been you know, versus what I did. So I tried to always start my PDs, especially in this, you know, this past year with something to like 
bring joy or curiosity or wonder to teachers. And so I started doing, you know, math strat chats a little bit. I, I, I like, I like math strat chat. I heard you, I heard you did. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about math strat chat. We're, we're going to get to math strat chat, but uh, so I talked to them and I you showed. You guys are all over the place, but this is fantastic. Keep going. So I showed, you know, I showed some, you know, examples of, you know, of some of the Twitter threads so that the teachers kind of knew, you know, what it was. And so just be kind of curious, be creative, come up with something. And immediately a teacher wrote in the chat when I posted one, I can't even remember what, you know, what number it was. And he just wrote 68, no reason to be cute about it. And I'm like, oh, man, there's so many reasons to be cute about 68. Because <laughs> I felt like I was getting people to, to like open up and give some ideas and be weird about how you come up with 68. Mm-hmm. And, his res- and the response was 68, no reason to be cute about it. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know what I, how I hear that, I hear that as somebody who, who honestly, and, and it's an honest uh, perception who honestly perceives a lot of what we're doing as sort of fuzzy, uh, cute, cutesy um, stuff, because let's be clear, our goal is the algorithm. So if our goal is to get kids good at these steps, then why are we doing all this fuzzy stuff before? How about, how about, Let's just take the time that, it, that you're doing all this fuzzy stuff and cutesy stuff. Let's just take all that time and let's really practice. Because if we can really practice, guess what? My kids are getting better at these algorithms and they're showing a lot of success at them because I'm giving them enough time to do that. I think that's a real perspective. Let me poke the hole in it that you might not be clear I'm going to poke. I want to poke the hole in that, that. Guess what? Our goal might not be the algorithm. Our goal might not be that kids actually get good at those steps. I think there's a lot of really good people out there, and I'm not going to name them by name, but that are doing really good work about helping us understand conceptually what's happening mathematically, that are helping us understand how we can teach better conceptually and really get kids diving into to using relationships. But then their goal is the algorithm. And I think that sends a, a dual message to people because I, if your goal is the algorithm, I might actually agree with your cute math teacher who says, ah, why be cute about it? I might actually agree that we're kind of wasting our time. If our goal is that kids get good at these steps, we could spend our time getting kids good at these steps and they will get better at those steps with more time on them. So why are we doing all this extra fluffy stuff? Ah, so that's to where I, I, now uh, let's be really clear. In my journey, it took me quite a while before I was ready to say, I don't think the goal is the algorithm. In fact, I could remember waking up sweating, going, what What if the goal isn't? The, like, like, what would it be? Guys, I walked around nervous for a while, reading lots of research and talking to lots of people and trying to figure out what would the goal actually be if the goal isn't the algorithm. I remember reading research by Constance Camille. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly where uh, her research has uh, named something, forgive me, something about algorithms are dangerous or the danger of algorithms. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, whoa, that's like out there. Like, how does she, how can she, how, how else would you solve these problems? And then I'll be honest with you. I dove into the numeracy world and I got really good at alternative strategies for addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, even fractions, decimals, percents. But I then would think back about higher math and I would say to myself, uh, but is there something else than the quadratic formula? Like, is there another way to write the equation of a line? Like, well, surely some of this stuff, finding derivatives, surely some of that we're going to have to memorize or, or do we? And through all my research and the experience that I've had, I now boldly say, not our goal. 
It, it is not our goal to create robots that just mimic steps. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm so thankful for, you know, Matt and I were joking before about how deep you want to get into math Twitter, but it's why I'm so thankful for the math Twitter community, because I think if I wasn't constantly being reminded, you know, by you and the, and the people who comment on you and Howie Wa and, you know, Kaplinsky and Meyer and Fawn Nguyen and, you know, and that whole community that's out there. I, I worry I'd be having the same conversations that like, wait a second, maybe I am the only one on this journey and maybe I am the only one here, but th- that larger math community, you know, across the world has really helped center me and remind me like, no, 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 I, I think we're on the right path here. Yeah. It is really helpful to have uh, like-minded people that have done the work. Like we've, we've really thought hard about, could we, could we create kids who are mathematizing who aren't reliant on algorithms and not only aren't reliant on algorithms, but it doesn't even occur to them because they're just thinking like they're actually just reasoning about what's happening. Um, if I could just share a little, it's, it's a little bit of proof. It's a little bit of anecdotal proof to what I'm suggesting, but remember I dove into my kids' education. I kind of sort of changed the way their teachers were teaching them mathematics from a young age. So I have four kids. Uh, my youngest is 20. They uh, to this day do not use algorithms to compute, to solve math problems, to solve physics problems, to solve, I, I have a son who just um, got out of linear algebra to yeah. solve linear algebra. Like, uh, so they, they, they never learned algorithm. Now my oldest, my older, I was working with his, uh, his teachers as he had them, poor guy. So he learned a lot of algorithms, but remember he was the guy that was doing the thinking behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. None of them to this day use algorithms. And I'll never forget the day my third said, uh, hey, you know, like, is this how it works? He like, well, I don't remember which of the algorithms, but he was kind of like, is this why? Because it's like the place value is like hidden kind of like behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And he literally said to me, wow, that is really complicated. Like somebody had to be really smart to come up with that because it's like everything's kind of like hidden behind the scenes. You can't really tell what's going on. And the place value is kind of, oh, why would anybody do that? If you could just think about the numbers. And it's really interesting. That's what a lot of the research says about um, the algorithms is that they're the result of hundreds of years of mathematicians work and making sure that it worked and making all of these shortcuts. So I think this kind of would be um, a good time to ask you to sort of talk about the real math that you're promoting. Cause I know that people talk about new math, which has a negative connotation, but this is different. Can you kind of share with us what you mean by students learning real math? And I think, I think we're getting there, but I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about it. And I'm so glad you asked that because I think often I will hear really good people talk about um, education or neuroscience. And I'm like, yes, that, that makes so much sense. And then they'll give me a mathematical example and I'll go, no, like, no, you're back to what? It, like it doesn't, they, it somehow doesn't even jive. So let's let the rubber hit the road. Um, one of the things I want to talk about just briefly is that um, uh, most of the algorithms out there work against intuition. So that what you would intuitively do to solve a problem is not what the algorithm asks you to do. So you guys kind of interrupted the uh, earlier when I was like 99 plus anything. If you're thinking about 99 plus anything, and I were to ask you for an ugly number like 47, you kind of say like 99. Well, I can think about 99 plus 47. But when I give that problem to kids, without them having done a a ton of work to rope memorize the traditional algorithm yet, we've caught them before that, those kids are all going to attack the big numbers first. They're thinking about 90 and 9 and 40 and 7. They're, they're not thinking about 9 and 7. 
they're thinking about like 99 is almost 100 and 47 is 40 plus seven or almost 50. And like they're, 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 they're grappling with what those relationships mean. And so they're dealing with the big numbers. What does the traditional algorithm ask you to do? It asks you to deal with the tiny numbers first. Let me just prove it to you in case you, um, anybody wants one more, more proof. Let's say you're in your online checking account and you're going to pay a bill and you need to make sure you have enough money in your online checking account before you pay that bill. Are you going to look at the cents to make sure that you have enough cents in your, That's a good point. like heavens no, right? You're looking <laughs> at the biggest numbers to make sure that you have, you know, the $500 of the bill that you're about to pay. Not the cents. You don't need the correct number of cents. You need the, so intuition drives us towards those big numbers because that, those are the numbers that govern what's happening um, for the most part in the problem. And so naturally we're inclined that way. You asked earlier, um, Macy, about when we kind of turn kids off. And I would say it's at that point where we work against their intuition. Mm-hmm. Some kids can make it through addition and subtraction and they can intuit what's happening enough that it doesn't it doesn't bust them. Some kids can make it through multiplication and even maybe division before it sort of like blows their minds when they hit fractions and all of a sudden we're supposed to, wait, multiply straight across? No, find a common denominator. No, invert and multiply. No, cross cancel, yeah. like which isn't even a thing, right? It's Cross cancel isn't even a thing. So it's when they hit all the rules and they can't keep them straight. And and, and then when they at that moment when they go, oh, I guess, I guess I'm just not a math person. Yeah, I'd actually and be they've curious. been compliant and mimicking this whole time, and then it becomes too much. And I hit that in third grade when my teachers t- start to ta- teach four operations at once. Sure, absolutely. And then those word problems fall apart. So, and I'm seeing I'm seeing images of my son Pam. I told you I have a nine year old Truman who's in third grade, and when when he brings home his work, you know, in a word problem, we talk through it. And I say, okay, let's just talk about the problem first. You know, what do you think? You know, what's going on here? You know. How would you solve it? What are you doing? And so he has an idea in his head and I said, okay, show me what you're thinking now on paper. And what he just told me looks nothing like what he wrote down on the paper. Because what he wrote down on the paper is what, what he's expected to do, which is carry ones and you know and write things in neat columns. And like, no, no, no. Uh, you just told me I thought that you were going to gr- add these two numbers and then add this one separately. Why here do you have them all lined up and doing it that way? That's not, you know, because he's just looking for, you know, what he thinks looks like on the page or what his teacher kind of showed them. And it goes against sure. exactly, it, it, totally against his intuition when we talked about it. Yeah, absolutely. Like the kids who said to me, I- I'll be happy to do the homework that you want me to do tonight. But is, is this, this, are these the ones that we did on Tuesday or the ones we did on Wednesday? <laughs> <laughs> to which I say, no, it's Thursday. We're doing Thursdays. It's not even Tuesday or Wednesday. It's Thursday. Yeah. Uh, because it's all about like, let me just try to mimic what you did. And, and we can't really knock anybody that's stuck there because we we did it to them, especially um, if you're a high school teacher. Hey, so we better let the rubber hit the road and actually do some math. So um, let me, we, we just did 99 plus 47, but we didn't kind of actually do it. So I, yeah, so we could think about 90 and 40 because that's kind of those numbers and I could add those to get 130 and then think about what's left over the nine and the seven and, and maybe think about, oh, I know seven plus seven is 14. So nine plus seven would be two more than that. So that's 16. So then I had that 130 and that 16, it's 146. So that's kind of the first thing that kids will do. That's the least sophisticated things kids will do, but they'll do it fairly naturally if we don't shove something else at them and force them to do something else. So then we need to help them get a little bit more sophisticated. We need to do more work to to kind of get that thing Macy was doing earlier where we suggested them 99, 100. (laughs) And so if I've already added one to 99, now I'm at 100, what I have left to add, I was supposed to add 47. So I just have 46 left. What is 146? That's just 146. So that'd be a bit of a more sophisticated way of handling that. I'm going to channel my inner Pam Harris and say, 
nice, you know, give and take strategy. <laughs> well done. Good job. <laughs> that is exactly what I call it. And in a huge way, it's using the associative property. So if I want to get really mathy, then I can talk about kind of the property that we're using. What if I were to ask you a question like the one that we asked on Math Strat Chat? Uh, I don't know when this episode's going to drop, but I asked it last night um, on Math Strat Chat, which is three fourths times eight fifths. Now, that's kind of a gnarly problem to ask over the airways because we can't really see much. And I would much prefer that we were in person right now or that you, or video so I could sort of model things. I could represent them, make them visible. But let me just wonder if we can think about three-fourths times eight-fifths. Not as, okay, okay, fraction multiplication. I know what to do. I, I, got, the, <laughs> I got the steps. And instead say to ourselves, three-fourths of eight-fifths. Three-fourths three, three fourths of anything. What three-fourths of anything? Hey, hey. I know I can find three, I can find one fourth of stuff by finding half of it and then having the half, right? Like if I've got half of something and I half that, that would be one fourth of something. So could we think about one fourth of eight anythings? What's a four, what's a fourth of eight? Yeah, two, right? A fourth of eight is two because I kind of cut eight into four chunks. So one fourth of eight or half of eight is four and half of that four is two. So one fourth of eight is two. Well, if one-fourth of eight is two, what's three one-fourths of eight? Yeah, three of those twos is six. Cool. So now we've got three-fourths of eight. Three-fourths of eight is six. But the original question was three-fourths of eight-fifths. Three-fourths of eight. Three-fourths of eight anythings would be six of those things. Oh, okay. So it's just six-fifths. Now we run the risk right now of somebody thinking, well, Pam, those are just new steps. Like you just gave me new steps to memorize. Ah, so unfortunately we're in this sort of scenario where we're on a podcast and I'm kind of telling you about real math rather than having you experience real math. What I would actually do in class is I would just launch that problem and I would ask kids how they think about it. Now, not that cold, not without some pre-work, but the pre-work isn't telling kids what to think or what to do. The pre-work is asking them to do kind of some of the bits that we just did. Like I might say, hey, let's find a fourth of a lot of things. And so we would find a fourth of a lot of things. And then I would say, ooh, let's find three-fourths of those things. And we'd find three-fourths of those things. And then we would deal with fifths. And we would learn that we can think about eight-fifths as eight one-fifths. And so I can think about them as eight of those things. So I would do bits and pieces where I'm pulling the understanding out of kids and, and, and sort of pulling together. It's not about me telling kids what to do. It's it, about pulling understanding out of them. It sounds like you're doing, you know, one of my it's not my catchphrase. I think I probably co-opted it from about a hundred other people, but that just in time, just in case. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Yeah. 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 As, as we're doing things and I, I should say, not just because I'm, I'm pulling stuff out of kids, but I'm also putting them in contexts that are helpful. Um, Kathy Fosno, I mentioned earlier is a master at coming up with contexts. Um, I think Kyle Pierce and John Orr are doing a fine job of beginning to do some work um, in that area where they're coming up with these uh, rich tasks that really have some nice context mm -hmm. that help build, um, help, help, help garner kids intuition into and use that intuition. And then the teacher uses those glimmers of understanding, represents them in a visual way, and the kids can then make more connections. And then we build on those connections by introducing more complicated contexts. Um, there's, there's a, a much more sort of natural but highly planned and purposeful way of kind of helping kids build relationships and then build on those relationships. Pam, let me kind of push you in a spot because Macy brought it up um, a few minutes ago and I want to get back to it. That, that idea of, you know, you talk about real math 
And I, I want to differentiate that between real world math, which I think is where uh, a lot of nice. math teachers get to, which is they feel like, well, yeah, we have to make it real world and we have to talk about money and the textbook yeah. companies think that they have to, you know, if we write problems about cell phone plans and movie tickets. That's going to light kids up. Yeah. Let me, let me quote a couple of people. So Dan Meyer would say real world schmeal world. <laughs> and Kathy Fosner would say, it doesn't have to be real world. It needs to be realizable means that in that context, I need to be able to help realize what's happening and realize the relationships that are happening. And so the math becomes realizable and then it's far more important than real world. I'll give you a, a brief example. We were trying to write a grant on a, a few years ago. Uh, there was some money available. And so this district said to me, hey, we want you to come in and do some professional learning with our teachers and we're going to get this grant. Will you help us write the grant? And I was like, I'll do what I can. Sure. Let's yeah, we'll dive in. So we described the, the experience we wanted teachers to have and they brought in the grant writer, bless her heart. And the grant writer said, okay, it's really going to sell. They're going to, they're going to, they're running. We are going to get this grant if we can use real world. So here's my suggestion. We're going to bring in, uh, we're going to take the teachers in the professional learning to the plant. They had a plant. I don't even remember the plant made, but they had a plant in the town and the plant was like some manufacturing plant. And they made stuff and we were going to go in the plant and we were going to find out what math they used on the line in the plant. And I was like, that is the worst idea ever. <laughs> and they're like, okay, never mind. Then we're going to have the kids, uh, this is a different scenario, but we're going to have the kids go home and ask their parents, how do you use math in your job? And I was like, again, the worst idea ever. Because do the parents use math? Yes. But are the, do the parents recognize when they yeah. use math? No. And so then the kids are going to come back to school and go, my parents don't use math. Why am I mm. taking this class? Mm. <laughs> so not, not a good outcome. It doesn't have to be real world. It's much more important that it's realizable. Let me say one more thing, if I may, about the difference between real world and fake math, or real math and fake math. Think about mathematicians for a second. What do mathematicians do when mathematicians do what they do? Do they mimic? Do they solve previously solved problems in a previously prescribed way? Like they go to work one day and they like sit down at their desk and they say to themselves, Okay, I've got to solve one through twenty-nine odd. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look up, up in this book. Here's a reference book, and yes, yes. Here's the, here's the box with the, with the formula and all the steps. I have three worked examples. I'm gonna copy. I'm gonna mimic exactly. I'm gonna circle my answer. I'm gonna show all my steps, and I'll, I'll get paid for that. Are you kidding? Like that, that's mathematicians do not mimic. They don't, they don't just uh, follow a bunch of steps that someone else has thought about. So then. What do mathematicians do? And I think this is a question that we have not sufficiently answered for the world at large. So I offer to you, mathematicians use what they know to solve problems or maybe to prove previously solved solutions that, that they'll work for the general. They, they take their intuition and they mess, they play, they, they're interested, they, they're intrigued by something and they go down that path and they wonder if it'll work and they then then they have to use deductive logic. So first they're using inductive logic. They're really trying to make sense of all the things. And then they have to use deductive logic to see if they can prove that it will work every time. Mathematicians solve problems using what they know. I posit we can get kids to do the same thing. And in that process, as they use what they know to solve problems, they actually create new math. So for example, we could do a really quick, if, if I may, a really quick example of how we can, and, and, and this is quick, so it's not good. It, it's fine. It's good. It's actually quite good. Ready? 
If I were just to ask uh, you guys, what is seven times eight? Anybody? Seven times eight? 56. All right. 56 is Macy. What is 70 times eight? 560. Because you know this nice thing in our yeah. in our, our place value system about times ten, and so you can just like mm-hmm. like you don't seven, have seven. Ten. No, no, no. Macy yeah. learned to just add a zero. Don't don't kid yourself, Macy. Yeah. Hey, either way, either way, I'm going to use that. Either way, like, if you, if you know something about times ten, that's all I need right now. I need I'm just going to use it to get five hundred sixty. I'm going to yeah. do one more one more thing. So if seventy times eight is five hundred sixty, what's sixty nine times eight? We would take away one of those groups of eight. So. 552. And I bet you just use something about partners of 10 in that. Yep. Yeah, totally. Nicely Where done. Rob calls them friends to 10. Yeah, I, We're nice. all about our friends to 10. Excellent. <laughs> and, and I want kids to know those partners of 10 because then they can use them in a problem like yeah. 560 minus that group of eight. And now I can solve 69 times eight by using what we call an over strategy. So mm-hmm. we just did it kind of quickly. I'm not going to suggest that we've constructed it like, like down deep and you own it forever. But boy, we do a few more problems like that. And I bet you guys just start looking for over strategies wherever they might work. And yeah, you can, and looking for patterns. And, look, yeah, yeah, looking for and then using those patterns. Yeah, and uh, starting to look at these numbers a little more holistically. Um, I just have a question. So now that we've talked about sort of what real world, what real math is, I'm sorry, and all the strategies that students might think of and what comes naturally to kids when they're reasoning and thinking about math. This seems really challenging to capture in a textbook or a math program, um, and and we struggle with it as as teachers and coaches in supporting teachers in conveying that with their students when they're tied to this book. So, what do you advise teachers to do with with their traditional math textbooks without throwing it out? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting um, dilemma because uh, honestly, the math can actually look very similar. I can ask questions. I can ask my four kids who don't use algorithms at all the exact same questions I would ask kids who have, have memorized algorithms. Um, and it's just the way they approach the problem is going to be really different. And so similarly, you're going to have teachers that could look at um, the same sort of material, the same resource, and use it completely differently based on how they come to it, based on their background and their experience and how they are thinking about real math. So it kind of depends on if you're talk if you're asking me how do you as leaders help teachers? I'll answer that first. Um, I think you have to give teachers experience in mathematizing. You have to help them realize what it means to look for clever strategies, what it means to actually use relationships, not not to program kids. Now they have to memorize five ways to do a problem. God, couldn't we just get away with? Our la- it used to be just one way to memorize it. Now you wanted to memorize five. We couldn't even get one down. Now five. That, that's not the point. The point is if they can learn these five relationships, ooh, now they are empowered to look at any problem and decide how they're going to solve the problem. It's not about giving, um, it's not about memorizing five strategies. It's not about a kid finding one that works well for them and they forever use that one. No, no, that's not power. It's not power that I'm stuck in one, even if it's not the algorithm. I really need kids to own the major relationships so that then they could use those relationships to judiciously choose how they're going to solve the problem. I need teachers and students to have that experience. And then it it matters less what the math looks like on the page. It matters more the perspective that I come at the math. It's the same problem, but it can be interpreted by, you know, how it's presented by 10 different teachers might look very, very different. 
and the questions yeah. you ask to, to support <coughs> students in thinking through. You said something really interesting for me, but you know, just before we leave this, so you talked about giving teachers experiences, right? Teachers mm-hmm. have to experience the master that they feel it. And, you know, and Mace, it starts to, you know, I, I start to burn a little bit. Remember, you know, remember we got criticized a little bit when we asked, we were introducing mm-hmm. teachers to three act tasks, which, you know, I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. And we gave that, we gave elementary teachers, it was a seventh grade, like math content. Mm-hmm. And the response that we got from some teachers was, we this wish that it, this wasn't our grade level. We wish we could have seen one that was our grade level. And, and I get that. I just, my goal was to give them an experience because if I gave them a second grade or a kindergarten one to kindergarten teachers, they wouldn't feel. We wanted them to feel like a student. What does it feel like to think about the math when you're not sure. Like I froze when you asked me 70 times eight and then into 69 times eight because mm-hmm. I'm so ingrained with what I'm supposed to do that I didn't, I, I didn't get to feed. I, you yeah, know, to giving them, yeah, yeah, you have to give them the experiences that their students feel um, so that they can understand what the process is like for us grappling with things um, in the classroom. Yeah. So, uh, as a professional developer, that's, I do, I, I teach teachers. Um, I have grappled with that same idea. Um, we are actually right now about to film, uh, what we call building edition for young learners, which is, uh, it will be an online workshop specifically aimed towards kindergarten, first and second grade teachers. And we have created a new task. Uh, we used to use a different task and we've decided that it, it did a little bit more what you guys tried to do. It was a little higher math and the teachers were a little bit resistant. And um, even though it was less, it wasn't seventh grade content, it was more like third grade content. Um, And so what we've done is we've taken um, the the big idea that kindergarten, first and second grade kids need to really understand what a 10 is. And they need to understand tens in 20 and the tens in 23 that, you know, like, what does it mean? And, And it has a huge thing to do with unitizing, what we call unitizing. What's, what's the unit you're referring to? Um, Because like the, the number 12, all of a sudden has two digits that represent that number. And that's, that's cognitively difficult for young kids. And so really understanding place value instead of just place labeling. And so we, we came up with a task that would really help kindergarten, first and second grade teachers dive into place value, but it was close enough to what they do that they don't balk at it. It's close enough that they go, oh, so for the, the smaller numbers, our kids need to be able to do that. Got it. I don't know if that makes sense. So I rarely take like, like I could do a high school problem string with the kindergarten teachers and it would have that same sort of effect, but they would be resistant because it's so far out of the realm of of their zone of proximal development. So not only do I need to stay within their zone of proximal development, but I also need to be close enough, tight enough to their content that they can go, Oh, I see how that could connect. Let me give you a short example. With kinder and first and second grade teachers, not the first thing I would do, but relatively soon, I would do a give and take string for addition so that they get a chance to see, oh, it's really important that kids know they're partners of 10. Then I would quickly back up with them and I would talk about, so what can you do? And I guess I just assumed that you all knew what I meant when I said a give and take string. Let me give you an idea. So if I did 99 plus 57 as the first problem, then I might do something like 47 plus 3. 47 plus 26. So that then I asked, how did you use 47 plus three to help you think about 47 plus really anything else plus 26? Like, can I, can I get to that 50 and then just add what's left over? Then I might do something like 399 plus 278. Ooh, 399 to 400. Mm -hmm. Can I add what's left over? 
that I might get a little crankier, like something like 3,988 plus 2,955. I'm going to let all our podcast listeners do that on their own at some point. But could you could you make one of those numbers nice by grabbing it from the other number? And then I will always add, uh, end with a problem like 3.8 or 3 and 8 tenths plus 1.9 or 1 and 9 tenths. Uh, now, at this moment, the kindergarten, first and second grade teachers are, are shooting daggers at you just a little bit. And you say, ooh, can you do what you just did? Again, you're trying to build the intrigue, but notice how I built the intrigue a little bit at a time. I didn't jump into seventh grade content. I got to seventh grade content, <laughs> but in fact, the last problem I usually do on a string like this is nine and nine tenths, like with fractions, plus four and two fifths. Now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in middle school content. I'm really trying to get kids thinking about, or teachers thinking about these, but I, but I got there um, gently to where now they feel empowered to mess with it. Now I might follow it with a rich task that's a little bit out of their grade level. Um, so uh, if I may, I'll just sort of suggest right here. Uh, what I just did with you is called a problem string, a string or series mm -hmm. of problems intended to create relationships in the learner's head. I think those problem strings, that's the mm -hmm. teacher task that is the inroad. That's the starting place for teachers. Rich yeah. tasks, rich tasks, not the starting place for teachers. Right. Macy, next week's grade level meeting. Problem yeah. strings. <laughs> there you go. There you um, go. And just thinking about like, you know, helper problems and just get, prompting kids with an entry point to get them into feeling confident with their strategies. And hey, wait, no, I do know how to solve this. And it, it comes back to thinking for themselves. So I just have a question. Ooh, ooh, kind of, I'm, uh, oh. Real quick, real quick. So prompting teachers with an entry right. point as well. That's Nicely said. That's what I was about to yeah. say. Being what I'm hearing, you know, Pam saying what I'm internalizing is, is Rob, just be patient. Yeah, go slowly and be patient. You know, I, I can't force, what? I can't force everybody there right away. Like I, I have to be systematic about, you know, going through the, yeah. you know, the problem string and going through with their content and then and problem strings are systematic. Them. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. they are. They they give entry points. Yeah. I think this year has taught us a lot about, you know, like a, a lot about a lot of things, but a lot about what we focus on in the classroom and, and where we've we've had things take longer online and virtual learning has dragged on. And we really had to become concise with the way that the, what we prioritize. What do kids need to leave the math classroom thinking about and understanding to be ready for maybe even the jobs that in the future are going to be more machine based or more computer based and they won't need the algorithm anymore. I mean, we, uh, don't get me, don't hear me wrong that we won't ever need algorithms. We absolutely need algorithms for computers because computers are dumb. Like all, <laughs> the only thing a computer could do is is what we tell it. And so right. uh, if I give a pro, if I give a computer 99 plus 47, it cannot think judiciously. It cannot say, oh, 99 is almost 100. I'm just going to, I'm going to give and take a little bit. It has to line it up and then, and, and then do all the steps every time for every problem. Only that, if it logs on to math strat chat every Wednesday night, <laughs> then it will know. <laughs> well, we can talk about machine learning, but, but my point is, so algorithms are important, but you might find it noteworthy that of my four kids who don't ever use algorithms to solve math problems, three of them are computer scientists. Mm -hmm. who write and code algorithms yeah. all the time because they are so good at the relationships that they're also brilliant at writing new algorithms. They're not stuck in old algorithms. They can actually create new ones. So you might, you might find that interesting. So yeah. in, just in your estimation, I guess, as we close this, you know, give me your impression of w what we learn 
you know, coming out of this pandemic? Like what, what's Pam Harris's big advice for like, man, I, I really hope this is what we, this is what we learned. And this is what math classes are going to look like from here forward. So we have a mantra um, that we we would say the most important thing for teachers to know or for teachers to have in their uh, in their repertoire is to know your content and know your kids. Let me start with the know your kids part. I hope we've learned that we have to communicate with kids. That that all of the virtual learning when you where kids don't have their cameras on, when kids don't show up, when we've got like half and virtual and half at home, and all of that 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 I think we've learned so much that when we can't have that relationship with kids, learning suffers. And so knowing your kids and listening to them and really hearing the way they are thinking about the relationships is, is very necessary. So know your, know your kids. And then I think that knowing your content needs to evolve Mm -hmm. from knowing the procedure to solve certain problems to shifting to really understanding the relationships that are necessary um, for say each operation, that's a, a, a way to think about it. So knowing that there are four major strategies that you need to understand for addition, for subtraction, there's four major strategies for multiplication. There's five major strategies with a, an extra really cool middle school strategy that we don't need, but boy, when we get to middle school, it's really great to bring in because then it's going to help with all the middle school topics that we have uh, certain relationships that are really important for specific domains of mathematics. And when teachers can understand those, that helps set them free to then be able to listen to students and help the students progress from where those students are. It helps us create or or um, adapt rich tasks or problem strings to hit our students where they are. So we need to have open enough tasks that kids have multiple entry points for wherever they are. A lot of people will say low floor, high ceiling. I, I, I don't usually use that because I don't think they actually need to be low floor. I think they just need to be low floor enough. Just wherever my students are, I need to have enough entry points for them to enter. And then I need to know that that terrain enough. I need to know those, those relationships, strategies, models, and big ideas so that then I can help students get better at being at mathematizing at using those relationships. That's how I hope mathematics education changes over the next little while. Uh, hey everyone. It's me, Matt, the uh, host. My show has been hijacked <laughs> from me for a while. <laughs> I got to jump back on here. This, this has been uh, such a wonderful conversation. I've loved every moment of it. I've loved sitting back, uh, thinking, engaging with it, reflecting, about how we can look at math in in a different way, how we can look at math in a way to engage students, how we can think about math in a transformative way that brings about deeper learning and and the insight and the examples and and all of these thoughts galore have been. Hey wonderful. Matt, before you actually clean it all up, could I give teachers, <laughs> can I give listeners a next step? Like maybe you're in. That. Maybe you're intrigued by what we talked about today. If I could just offer you a next step, join us on Wednesday nights on hashtag math strat chat as we throw out a number talk for the world and we solve problems with the world. But if you're ready to move from that, which it sounds like uh, my Rob and Macy here today are ready, ready to move on from that. Um, I took my signature professional development. If, if somebody asked me to do PD in a district, I had a day that was the first thing I did, no matter what grade level I came in and I did what I call the development of mathematical reasoning. It was a day long workshop 
we filmed it and turned it into a free online workshop. So if you're interested in taking that free online workshop, it is a fantastic next step to really understand, get it down and dirty, nitty gritty about what I'm talking about. You can find it at mathisfigureoutable.com slash free workshop. mathisfigureoutable.com slash free workshop would be a great next free step to learning more about real math. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Mike Dunn, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to the show. As we do wind things down today, uh, Pam, we'll start with you. Who do you want to give a shout out to? I'm going to shout out a colleague of mine named Kristen Frang, who works in Michigan, who always makes me think a little deeper about both the mathematics and about equity and making sure that I am reaching all students. Rob, you're up next. Who do you want to give a shout out to? Ian Kerr, Dan Kaufman, and the rest of the, the, the math consortium that kind of hangs out up here in uh, Delaware County and Montgomery County. So uh, we do ama amazing work, you know, get together a couple times a year talking about, you know, the things Pam has to say. It was, I think it was Ian who introduced me to, you know, Mass Chat a few years ago. So, you know, shout out to that crew. Cool. Macy? Um, I'm going to give a shout out to one of my uh, co-workers, Allison Marion, who started Edvario. Um, I think it's a great place for teachers to check out. Um, and share instructional strategies. I think this this math conversation and, and moving forward in our mathematizing as teachers mm. wouldn't be possible if we didn't collaborate. And she's got a great space for just collaboration around strategies for um, instruction and what a great place to start. Wonderful. Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? We're going to start this off with Rob. Rob, what would you like to say? Uh, my final word is I, I feel like Pam has given me a, allowance to go to my son's teachers, which I've always been scared to do at his school, uh, <laughs> and let them know exactly what I do. I feel like I kind of hint at it a little bit. Mm. Um, but if Pam got into her son's school and talked to them about math, then I feel like I have the green light to uh, to get into to that school. So I'm excited to tell all, all, all my son's teachers who I am and what I do. Cool. Look out. Yeah. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> Macy, what would you like to say? I really want to encourage teachers to to explore the math strat chat with Pam Harris and and you know put put yourself out there and start start thinking about math in different ways. There's not only one way to do it, and um, I know I've learned a lot in the last couple of years as I've had as I've made the time, I guess, and that's that's a big one. Making the time to know your content um, and elementary math teachers, you can do this. Pam, close us out. What would you like to say as the final word? All students, all people can do more real math than they can fake math. And I am the proof because I was the queen of fake math. And, uh, and I was also very quick at fake math. I'm actually quite slow at real math. And so I want to free everybody up to know it's not about speed. It's about relationships and about thinking and reasoning and using what you know to solve problems. And we can all do more real math than fake math. Pam, this has been so great. Rob, Macy, thank you for taking over the show, hosting this show. Great questions. I love it. 
Thank you for joining me on Diving Deep. To those listening, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.